welcome to Endurance Icons, where we sit down with individuals who are excelling and inspiring in the world of endurance sports. We are your hosts, Mark and Jessica Cullen, and today we are sitting down with professional triathlete Jackson Laundry. Now, Mark, can you talk a little bit about why Jackson's an icon to us? I am super excited to have Jackson on. Been a longtime fan of his and uh, had the pleasure of training in person a couple times with Jackson. He's an endurance icon to us because he has four Ironman 70.3 wins in his career. Um, he's had a great 2022 with a win at uh, the Ironman 70.3 Oceanside, where he took down the likes of Lionel Sanders and Alistair Brownlee at that race. He's also been fifth and seventh at the last two Ironman 70.3 World Championships, both in St. George. And all of this after showing his resilience after he broke uh, both his scapula and clavicle at the 2019 70.3 Worlds in Nice, France, uh, when he crashed on the descent there. So we are super excited to have on the podcast today, Jack the Snack Laundry. Welcome, Jackson. Thank you so much. What a great intro. Um, I think, you know, it's nice when you just hear about your good results. It makes you feel like you've done really, really well. So so that's uh, always really nice. <laughs> Awesome. So I I obviously called you Jack the Snack Laundry in the intro there. I have a little context behind your nickname, but maybe you could kind of explain to our listeners uh, where this kind of nickname came from. I don't remember who was the one who coined that term. It might have been Garrick, uh, who's a good good buddy and training, training mate of mine. But I just, I'm always eating. Like I am snacking constantly uh, throughout the day, during training, before, after. Like I think... Most days I don't go more than about an hour and a half without eating during the day. Obviously overnight, I'm not eating, <laughs> but, uh, and then it rhymes with Jack. So that's just kind of, I think where, where it's stuck. It still hasn't really taken off. I mean, I'm not like known as snack, but amongst my friends, at least that's, that's a, a nickname that gets thrown around every now and again. Nice. Definitely a good skill to have for a triathlete. Um, so let's uh, let's hop into it here. I think we can start with uh, with 2022 because I feel like you've had some some definitely highs and lows in this year. So it'd be uh, I think it'd be good to to kind of go through all of it. Um, you I mentioned it in the introduction, but you started off the year really strong with that Oceanside race. Maybe take us through a little bit about like why you felt so good in that race and kind of the race itself because obviously it was amazing uh, throwing down with guys like Lionel and Alistair and and really showing what you had in that race. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah, that was actually my second race of the year. I did do clash Miami, which I think was three weeks prior. Uh, and I had an okay race. I was seventh in like a really competitive field. Um, but yeah, nothing crazy. Like my swim wasn't that great. And then I biked okay and ran well, and it was just like super, super hot and just kind of felt like I survived it, but survived it better than most, I guess. Um, so and coming in Oceanside, you know, confidence was pretty good, but also I didn't really have a lot of expectations, honestly. Um, had never raced Oceanside, and for those who haven't done the race, which is probably most, um, you can't really preview the bike course unless you're there at, like, a specific time on a specific day because it's, like, a part of um, a military, like, base or something. Um, so you can't just go on there whenever. So didn't know the bike course. All I knew was it. It was pretty hilly, checked out the elevation profile, and I was like, okay, you know, probably a good bike course for me because I like hills. Um, and then the swim was like an ocean swim. Um, so I focused really hard in the two or three days before the race, like when I was in Oceanside, at just 
getting really used to the the swells and kind of the run in is going to be a super long run in where it's pretty shallow and then you're dolphin diving you're you know diving into the waves as they're crashing and you kind of got to get past that break and so i thought if i can get really good at this part maybe i can you know be pretty far up near the front and then kind of hang in there for the swim so i did that and and it was just kind of this weird place not weird but a really good place to be in a race where you've been training really well all winter you you know you've been training consistently the course works out for you you don't really have expectations but you're focused mentally on the right things before the race like okay good swim start swim hard get in the right place wetsuit swim maybe i can keep up with these guys who are faster than me um and then that kind of just played out in the race had a really good start kind of got in that lead group and just like dangled on the back of it the whole time and sort of got dropped at the end but then i was only like 25 seconds behind the leader um which is a career best swim for me when you're you know swimming with ben canute and alistair brownlee and guys who are fast really fast um so then got on the bike and and bridged up pretty quickly kind of into that front group and was kind of just like reacting to everyone as they would get dropped like I would see somebody getting dropped, go around them, make my way into the group again. And that happened like four or five or six times. And eventually the last person to get dropped was, I believe, Jason West, um, who's an incredible runner. And then it was just Rudy Von Berg, Alistair Brownlee, Ben Canute, myself, and then Sam Appleton. So um, survived the hills with Alistair just punishing the pace and, um, you know, got into T2 with all these guys. We kind of rode the same speed as Lionel, um, kept him away. I actually had the fastest bike slip by a couple seconds because I was like the last guy to make that group. And um, and then I just got on the run. And again, no expectations. I was like, all right, let's just go run, see what happens. And kind of, I was at a transition like fourth maybe. And then Ben Canute and, and um, Rudy were kind of ahead. And Alistair crossed the gap to them really quickly and then they just kind of stayed there and I just worked my way up to them without too too much trouble and then it was just a matter of okay let's you know follow these guys and I was kind of just following Alistair's lead for the most part uh, for the first six or seven k he put in a surge kind of gapped me and Rudy and then but he kind of just held it there at like 10-15 seconds for like a long time like another 10k um nine or 10. So we're, you know, 5k to go. He's still there. And I just kind of felt like I had a bit of another gear and I just upped the pace a little bit, dropped Rudy. And, and then I saw Alistair coming back and I, I kind of hit my, like, you know, I'm starting to feel good moment at the same time he hit his, I'm starting to feel bad moment. And that, you know, I just, then I probably made up five seconds per K for two or three K and caught him and just, you know, put the pressure on and I figured there's no way he's going to be able to hang with me. If he's, you know, he's not one to just kind of let someone catch up and rest. Like he's going for it the whole time. So, uh, I broke him pretty quickly and then it was just sort of survived to the finish. Um, but yeah, that was kind of crazy crossing that finish line. Like before the race, I was thinking like, you know what, who, who knows where you'll be at. These guys are really fast and, you know, just see what you got. And then when you're in the moment, you're like, okay, I guess I got to change my expectations here just to give myself a chance. Cause when you're there, you're there and, and you got to take the chances when you can get them. 
Nice. Yeah, that was a, a pretty epic race to watch. I remember seeing some of the pictures after some of the epic pictures of you passing Alistair and everybody losing their minds. So that was a, a pretty cool day. So you you start the year with this uh, this big win at Oceanside. And then um, I think you've alluded to it a little bit in some of your like social media posts, but you it seemed like you felt like you held good fitness through the year, but maybe didn't have some of the results that you were looking for kind of through the summer and Collins Cup and stuff like that. Yeah, um, definitely. I would say, um, you know, shortly after Oceanside, the results were were pretty okay. Like I did the St. Anthony's try a few weeks later, and I finished like sixth, I think. But it, it was like a kind of an okay day where it just didn't really play out in my favor, and and that was the way it was. Um, and and then I think next was. Chattanooga 70.3 which was the North American champs and I feel like I did have a pretty good race there and finished fourth similar situation where it just didn't quite play out like it was pretty hard on the bike and we were trying to break away and we just couldn't get away from Matt Hansen and Jason West who are incredible runners and they both ended up going on to run like 109 Um, and I ran 112 and it was like hot and I thought that was a pretty good day and just Rudy kind of you know, got me in the last mile. So ended up fourth, but, um, that kind of day really showed me like that things can be so, um, different on a different day with the same people. Like, you know, Jason West was at Oceanside and he got dropped on the bike kind of at around 30 K. And then he was too, so far back, he had no chance on the run really. And then he doesn't get dropped in Chattanooga. And it's like, it doesn't matter how good of a run I had, I wasn't going to beat him that day. Um, so that was kind of interesting to really, you know, cement that idea in my head, but yeah, that one was, that one was solid. And then, um, what was it? Montremblant was like, okay, I finished third, but like, I kind of felt like I missed an opportunity. Like I just had no legs on the bike that day. And, and sometimes it just doesn't show up. Um, but that was, you know, still a decent result, but then we kind of got into some of the bigger races where I felt like I did bring the fitness and I just like dropped the ball in other regards, um, especially Canadian open, which was the first PTO race of the year. That's definitely the biggest missed opportunity for me this year. Um, I had really, really good fitness in, in coming into that, especially bike fitness. Um, but I just had a bad swim and like, I think, a number of different things came into that part of it was just not quite getting in the water enough, uh, in the last week, like I was rested, but then my form started to suffer because I just didn't quite have that repetition. So that was part of it. Another part of it was like the first ever PTO kind of race. And like, I was super excited, but I was like too, I was too much like surrounded by everything. And just my mind was constantly focused on the race. Um, and I just didn't kind of get that, rest i was just too too wound up um and so that kind of like psyched me out a bit in this in the start of the race and i ended up having like probably my worst swim of the year i was like three minutes down um with some incredibly fast swimmers in a non-wetsuit swim with some technical aspects so i was pretty far back did bike really well um but then i also made an error in my nutrition where i just took in too much sodium uh on the bike and, you know, unfortunately, I learned that lesson twice this year, which we'll get to in a minute. But <laughs> um, I ended up kind of cramping up on the run. 
And while I cramped up late in the bike, doesn't really like abdominal cramping doesn't really affect me on the bike. But once you start running and you're kind of engaging your core more, it just, it really is limiting. I'm sure most people have experienced it. Uh, and I just ran really badly. So like I got off the bike in 12th or something and ended up 19th. Um, so that was disappointing, but again, I felt like I had great fitness and if I just not make, even if I just didn't make the nutrition mistake and still had the bad swim, I, I think I would have been top 10 for sure. So it's just kind of one of those things where you can't let it hurt your confidence and you try to learn the lessons, move on. Um, so I felt like I did that, but going to Slovakia for Collins cup, uh, kind of just didn't sleep like didn't adjust to the time zone well at all. And again, looking back, it was like, oh, well, I wasn't doing the things you need to do to adjust to a time zone, like getting up in the morning, going outside immediately, um, trying to j get some of that natural sunlight, shutting off all lights early before bed, those simple things that I know to do, but then just, you know, again, all surrounded by the Collins Cup and everything hype and like I just – drop the ball on it. So I started realizing these trends of like I'm making mistakes that are dumb mistakes, really, that I shouldn't be making at this point in my career. Um, so at this stage, I sort of started uh, a, a friend of mine who reached out to me, Simon Whitfield, who, you know, I didn't know him really that well earlier this year. He just reached out and said, hey, you know what? Do you want to just chat, have a meeting, just, you know, go over how you're racing has been going and just talk about it and see what happens. Uh, and so he's been like a mentor to me the last several months and kind of some of his experience, um, has come in with some really great advice where he's kind of tried to, you know, help me develop better habits. Um, so I've been trying to do the morning light thing every day, you know, turn off the lights in the evening, those things for sleep, but also things that keep me more organized. Like I shouldn't be learning these race lessons again and again and again, uh, but I seem to be. So kind of starting to like take some of my organization away from my screen and like putting the freaking phone down sometimes <laughs> and just having like an actual calendar that you write things down in and writing in a journal and just sort of like when you're, when you have ideas going on about things you could do better or that you've, done well in the past you, you're writing it down and then you're just not distracted um by your device and i'm really bad with that as soon as i pick up my phone to do something i forget to do it because i see 25 other things um so that's been huge just like those little changes uh number of other small things but nothing like groundbreaking just like being more mindful of how i'm you know interacting with my phone and just how i'm planning my day how I'm recovering and just being more consistent. And since that Collins cup, I've really gotten some, some great, you know, fitness in my training and, and obviously worlds was a good result. Um, Dallas was honestly, I executed a pretty good race. Um, finished 17th. Like it's not really a course that suits me super well. And it was insanely hot. Um, which some people deal with better than others. And I'm probably somewhere in the middle. Um, but my back didn't cooperate with me on that flat course. And, and that's kind of another thing that I'm working on. Okay. How can I get it so that my back doesn't bother me on these flat courses? Plenty of guys can ride really well on flat courses without having issues. So I've got to figure out how that can be me. And I've been working towards that, but it's kind of a work in progress because 
there's no definitive answer. There's no like doctor on course with me like, oh, look, this is what's happening right now. Like you kind of have to play around with it and work with your PT or whatever your your team is. So that's what I've been doing. And, um, you know, that race went reasonably well. But then Worlds was, I thought, a really good day um, overall, especially I mean, obviously not a great swim for me to be 34th out of the water um, out of, I think it was only like 45 guys or so. But um, honestly, I was like pretty sick in the three days before the race, including on race day, um, just with something upper respiratory, like nasal congestion, um, blowing my nose constantly, sore throat. And my main uh, battle that day was just getting my head into it that I can actually still have a good race. Um, so before the race, my entire focus was on just calm down. You can do this. Like you can still have a good day. And my focus wasn't on, you need to crush this swim start because there's room for 10 guys to get through. And there's 45 guys here basically. (laughs) So, uh, unfortunately I wasn't one of the guys who had a really strong start and I just got clobbered. Uh, and kind of went backwards. And then from there, it was just get through the swim. And uh, I still was in my head about like, oh, can I even have a good day? Like, I really got to get myself going here. Um, And then once I got on the bike, 10, 15 minutes in, and I realized I was actually catching most of the field, then I sort of got my confidence back and, and rode my way into, I think, ninth off the bike, and then ended up seventh after the run, which was really good. Um, so, so the trend being like, once I kind of realized that there was a problem with how I was addressing my race prep and just my general organization in my life and my life planning, um, things have been improving. I would say as a whole, my, my numbers and training have improved. I'm, I'm at lifetime best bike fitness. I have been for the last two months. Um, and then, you know, I mentioned learning that lesson about nutrition twice. I went to Los Cabos afterwards and did the same damn thing that I did in Canada uh, with the sodium. So, you know, that was frustrating. I mean, sometimes the first time you learn a lesson, you're not sure if that's what actually caused it. And that's what happened in this case. Cause I figured, okay, Mexico is quite a bit hotter. I'll be sweating more. I need more sodium. Like that's somewhat of a logical progression, but in reality still wasn't that hot. And in a half, you really don't need that much sodium. Um, so made that mistake again and and paid for it on the run again. So won't be doing that again, regardless of how hot (laughs) it is. (laughs) Um, but yeah, things have been trending in the right direction, but definitely I think it's accurate to say I started off really strong. Well, really I've had one really strong result this year. One good, really good result at worlds, a couple of okay results. And then yeah, kind of meh the rest of the year. So it's been, been a lot of learning this year. That's for sure. <laughs> um jumping a little bit back to that 70.3 worlds i know the days like leading into that everybody was uh like losing their minds about the cold and what to do on that part what did you like end up doing in that race and did your tactic play out well for you yeah so definitely everyone was thinking about it we were testing things we went out the <laughs> day before the race tested gear you know did some race efforts and felt it out and um I kind of decided that I probably didn't need anything other than gloves. Um, And that was, you know, not because I didn't want to take the time or anything, but because I know that I can handle cold conditions pretty well. And 
that's what I felt when I tested it. Um, so race day, have that terrible swim, get, get into transition, start putting my gloves on and they're taking a long time. Like it felt like forever to get the first glove on. It was probably like three seconds and I didn't have it on yet. And I was like, screw this. I'm not putting this stupid thing on. <laughs> so I just <laughs> didn't put the gloves on and it was fine. I mean, it was, I felt the coldness on my skin, but my core temperature felt fine. And I also knew that, well, I guess I didn't mention this before, but one of these other habits that I developed was taking cold showers, um, like four or five times a week, like cold showers, like take your breath away cold. And you kind of train your nervous system not to freak out about the cold because it doesn't matter how cold the water is. Your, your temperature is not going to drop right away. Like when that water hits your skin, it's not, it's not a necessary freak out of your entire body shutting down, but that's what your body does because it thinks that that's just going to continue. So it's like, okay, this is the best reaction to happen so that you get out of there so that you don't freeze later. Um, So basically that was what the first few minutes of the bike felt like. It was like freezing on my skin, but I was used to it. I was calm. I felt fine. And I figured, okay, my hands are going to be cold for a bit, but once it warms up, those will be fine too. So I knew that would be okay, and I was better prepared for that than most. There were some guys who didn't finish because um, the bike on the bike it was too cold. Um, so yeah, I had planned for that, and even though I didn't quite stick to my plan, it worked out in this case. But it also wasn't nearly as cold for us as it was for the women. So if it had been a little bit colder, I probably would have needed the gloves and maybe some other stuff too. Yeah, um, Jess was definitely complaining about their day because she had raced the day before there, and I didn't find our day too bad out there. So I needed I thought, my gloves. <laughs> I think you need more you, than your gloves. Did you need a base layer as well? or? I did. I wore a lot less than I thought I would. I just biked as hard as I could, but it was also just it felt like my legs never warmed up, if that makes sense. It was like almost into the run till my, my toes unthawed as well. So I'm a wimp wow. in the cold. So maybe I need to take uh, <laughs> a cue from you and start taking cold showers. You know what? It's, I wasn't taking them for the cold prep. I was taking them because apparently it's good, really good for your nervous system. And then you get like an, an endorphin high from it afterwards, which I have noticed. Um, but then once I realized St. George is going to be really cold, I was like, perfect. Now all these people are going to be not ready, ready and I am. Yeah. So, um, yeah. But that, that whole experience sort of puts me back to, like, like, really happy that the race went well, but also disappointed that I didn't have the swim that I've had many times in St. George because I really do think I, like, I was biking well enough to stay with that lead group at least until Snow Canyon at the minimum. Um being that I did a lot of the bike solo and then even went with the group that we had, I was at the front a lot and I still was only two, maybe two and a half minutes slower than like the average of that group. So when you've got a group of five guys and you're 12 meters back, 15 meters back, you're still getting a draft. And like, I know I could have hung in there, but that's just more encouragement for next time. Like don't screw up the swim. Like that's on me. I need to be, doesn't matter how many guys can fit through that, gap in the swim i need to be one of them um so that's you know project number one for the off season and on that bike there there was obviously some weird confusion where some like huge packs were coming together in there and there was this whole part where you were pegged as like the villain for sam long's penalty on the day um 
we don't i don't think we need to go too deep into this and beat a dead horse or anything but um do you want to maybe just tell us a little bit about kind of the like pack dynamics and kind of what happened in that scenario of maybe like how things shook out yeah um so sam and i both had bridged up to this group um he was a I want to say he was less than a minute behind me out of the water. Uh, and I kind of caught that group like 20K, 15, 20K in. It, and it was all very hard to say, like, what's the group? Because it was splitting up all the time. It was a huge group at the beginning. Guys were getting dropped off the back. So it was kind of a very dynamic scenario. But the group that I ended up in, Sam caught us in probably around 30K in. Um and then he started whittling his way towards the front of the group and just sort of like passing. And then he would he would cut into the group where he saw that there was space or what he thought was space. Um, and so that's all kind of normal. Also, what's normal in a group is that there is, especially on a hilly course, the group will like expand and contract with the hills. So imagine you're getting to an uphill. The person behind you hasn't gotten to the uphill as quickly as you. So they're they're going faster. So they start catching you. So that happens on a big scale with 20 guys and a bunch of guys end up like five meters apart. So I saw that happening. And as it was sort of happening with the guy in front of me, I had to then pass the group. And that group was the group that Sam was passing. So I had to pass that whole group and Sam, which I had no choice. Um, so I did that and he got, he was given a card at that time after I passed him after the race, the officials then really revealed that, he actually had gotten the penalty a minute and a half before for slotting in, which had nothing to do with me. Um, but he decided to not mention that in any way <laughs> after the race. So apparently there's, I, I heard from a podcast that he was on that he said that there is a, a code of, there's sort of, what is it? Uh, courtesy that you don't double pass. Well, Sam double passed two minutes before that. There is no courtesy about double pass. You double pass because you have to to not get a penalty. Happens all the time. I talked to several other pros. And nobody's ever heard of this courtesy. So I don't know what courtesy Sam's talking about. But um, either way, when you get a penalty, you can either take some accountability for it or you can apparently blame the system. And some people blame the system and some people take accountability and some do a mix of both. But um Either way, it wasn't super fun getting all that negativity and then not having uh, Sam do anything in regards of, oh, by the way, this wasn't when the penalty happened. Please don't threaten Jackson, anything like that. So um, you can conduct yourself however you want, but it's just it's going to have repercussions. So um, let's just say we'll all be thinking of him in a different light from now on. Hopefully now you can remove the security detail from around your house that people know what really happened. <laughs> yeah, I won't be giving out my address anytime soon. So those like the groups are so tight and stuff now in these races and you kind of talked about some of these races this year where like you're racing the same guys week over week and every week it's a different result for a different guy. Is this really been like a development over like the last couple years coming out of the pandemic or has it been like this for a number of years? What have you noticed? Um, yeah, it's mostly pretty new. Um, if you look back five, six years, you pretty much had the same guys winning the same guys, you know, coming in third, second to fourth. And then, um, you could kind of look at a start list and pick out who was going to win. And sometimes you got a close race, but most, for the most part, 
you kind of knew how it was going to play out. Now it's just, who knows? I mean, you, you've, you, you've obviously got guys who are consistently at the top and some guys who are like sometimes at the top, sometimes not. That's, it's kind of more where I'm at. Um, and you just can't, you can't pick a winner. Like even you look at, look at the Daytona list, look at the, um, Indian Wells list. Like, how are you going to pick a winner? Um, you, you might, but unless the Norwegian's there, it's pretty tough. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of exciting though, because you really believe that you have a chance. Like once you've been in there and you've had those days, you believe that you have a chance to win because on any given day, it could be your day. Or if you just execute the race, like, you know, you can, and you show up with the right fitness and you get a little bit of luck. I mean, you need a little bit of luck too. Um, but it's also kind of cool because when you're that close or like, there's some guys who are, you know, more consistently towards the top, like let's say Magnus Ditlev, and he's biking like an absolute animal. But then when you're that close, you you believe you can get to that level. You you believe you can ride with him or, or get her fitness just up that little bit more um, to, to kind of compete with him. So it's kind of like pushing the whole sport up, and, and it's obviously a result of the PTO, uh, at least in part, mm-hmm. with these huge prize purses and, um, you know, paying out – a big end of year bonus, uh, to the top hundred. Um, it's really brought more people. It's brought more competitors into the pro scene. And then when that happens, it's harder to win. And then everyone pushes themselves to a better level and puts more into it. And then all of a sudden you've got, you know, a more competitive sport at the top end. And it's pretty cool to be a part of. I mean, um, I didn't really imagine myself even in the position I am now, uh, probably seven or eight years or even five years ago. Um, but you just, you chip away and eventually you, you kind of, you, you get these huge improvements over the long term just by tiny little improvements kind of week over week. Yeah. It's almost like these 70.3 races have become like non-drafting ITU races, essentially like where it's just these swim packs are so important. And then these like groups get away on the bike and then it's like this run race at the end. It's a, uh, it's pretty wild. It seems like they're going to have to make some big shifts on some of those like bike dynamics. If things are going to continue to be like so close, what do you think they can do to like fix that up a little bit to make things like more fair for somebody that's, if it's going to be a non-drafting race, who's coming from a little bit behind. Yeah, I think, um, well, the PTO having the 20 meter draft zone mm-hmm. is, it's quite a big, uh, difference. That being said, even at 20 meters, the groups stay together. So mm-hmm. it's kind of, you know, I think the race ranger is probably the the thing that's, that's trying to kind of move forward. Um, it's just like a company that developed technology to, to essentially show, um, tell the referees how far apart people are staying, who's been in the zone longer. It also has lighting system to show the athletes if they're in the zone or not. Um, so basically it'll, it'll, limit cheating because the referees will see who's like a frequent offender. And then they can't give them a penalty based off of the radar, but they can then go and look at that athlete more closely and things like that. So I think that's, you know, probably the best thing that can happen. I think Ironman could definitely adopt the 20 meter draft zone. uh, And that would help. That being said, you know, the zone, it is kind of what it is. Um, Like the rules are the rules. And, you've got to, you got to adapt to those rules if you want to be successful. Um, so 
you know, that the same, the same thing in an IT race that's draft legal. Well, is it not a fair race because it's draft legal? <laughs> well, no, it's just, that's the way it is. And the swim's more important. So, um, the fact that that's where long course is kind of now is it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, you know, it's a different thing. And, uh, if we want to call it non-drafting, then you probably have to make the draft zones like 40 meters, to be honest, mm -hmm. because even at 20, there's, there's a little bit of a benefit, but, um, it's realistically, it's semi-draft legal at this point. Um, especially in these championship races in smaller races, you know, sometimes it is more of a non-drafting kind of thing, but even at Mont Tremblant this year, there was a pack of like eight of us or something and nobody could break away because when you're that close in ability and somebody's getting a 20 watt benefit, you're not going to drop them. Yep. Seems like uh, a lot of the, well, I've seen like Cody and Lionel both posting a bunch about it of these like big swim camps they're doing in the off season to really like up their game on that. Is something, is that something like you would work on as well? I know you do some training and stuff with, uh, with Cody out in Guelph too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I don't know if I'll have a chance to quite do as big of a camp as what Cody's doing. Um, that being said, it's, it's my number one priority. My swim is always my number one. Like if I have a hard swim, that's my first workout of the day. I'm never doing a hard run or bike before it. Um, it's just not an option. So that's how, how I prioritize it. I haven't, the one kind of thing with me is like, I have pretty, uh, limiting shoulder pain that happens with my swimming just generally. Um, it's definitely, you know, it's manageable and it, for the most part, I can still train just as hard as anyone else, but it does sometimes comes in and out. And that's what I'm working on with my physio to kind of really rehabilitate my shoulders, both of them. Um, cause my left ends up taking a lot of the load because my right is kind of limited in its range of motion. Um, so that's a big project for this off season is to get my shoulders to a healthier point where I can swim more and swim harder. Um, but it's always going to be my first priority to, to try to get in that lead pack. And like, I've done it. It's the way I'm looking at it now is I don't even really need to get faster. I just need to get more consistent because on my best days, I'm where I need to be, um, or at least really close. And so if I just can, can be consistently there, um, that's pretty much going to be the, the ticket for me. It's at this point, it's like a third of the time, maybe half. And, and I'd like to get it up to like 75%, 80% of the time. Um, but obviously getting faster is going to help that. So get faster, also get more skilled at swimming well in a race. Uh, those are the two goals. And I don't know, like I said, I don't have a super long off season this year because I'm racing in December and obviously I'm going to go back to Oceanside April 1st. So, um, whatever I can do in my swim to improve it, I'm going to be doing in those three, whatever it is, four months. Nice. And is that a uh, Daytona that you're finishing off your year with? Yeah, I'll be finishing in Daytona. And also I'm going to be going to Indian Wells the same weekend, um, oh. <laughs> which I haven't really made super public, but I guess whoever listens to this is going to know, <laughs> uh, which is cool. Cause I just like, I kind of wanted to just do it for fun, really. Um, obviously, Daytona is going to be the priority because you can't expect to do better on the two days later race. Um, so Daytona is a, a great, great race for me to kind of try to test my, my you know, recent uh, changes in my saddle position to see if that really helps with my back. Um, 
and it seems to be helping in training, but the race is the tell because sometimes it feels great in training. Then all of a sudden my back just gives out like 20 K in and it's a struggle. So 60 K flat bike. Um, I, you know, I really think I can ride well on any course, but flat courses, you know, seems to be the limiter. So let's see if I can put together 60 K really good on a flat course. And then maybe next season I might be able to get 80 or even 90 K on a flat course. And then maybe one day 180, but let's, <laughs> let's, uh, you know, take it one step at a time. I feel that, uh, <laughs> uh, for, I I'd love to talk about how you got started in the sport. So you talked about, you know, even five to seven years ago, you never would see yourself here, but how did you even begin in the sport of triathlon? Yeah. Um, well, I was, as a kid, I did um, cross-country every year. So my first endurance sport experience would have been cross-country, probably grade, I don't even remember what when they let you start. It was like grade three or something. Um, but that would have been my first, that and track and field day and everything. And obviously, I mean, I was a good runner, especially on the distance stuff. So that was all fine. And then you go to the big you know, cross country meet with all the schools around and then I do okay, but there'd be like 10 kids or 15 kids that beat me. And I would get so nervous before all those races and <laughs> it was just a ordeal. But then when I was not quite 11 years old, the kids of steel triathlon came to my hometown, Belleville. It was only held there for one year, but it, it was there at a location, literally one K from my house. And my dad heard about it somehow and suggested I do it because he had done some triathlons before I was born, just like a few of them and trained for him and, you know, did his thing. And he did really well, except for in the swim, he sucked. Um, so I was like, okay, well, let's go do this. And I guess everyone else in my town had the same idea because I was in the 10 and 11 age group and there were 64 kids in that age group. Oh, it's um, like an Ironman event almost. <laughs> yeah. For a two year age. So I was like, so all my, like a ton of people I knew were doing it and stuff. And it was, I remember it was a hundred meter swim. I don't remember the bike distance. It might've been like 10 K maybe five. I don't remember. And then the run was like two K. So I was last in the swim 64th out of 64. Um, it took over four minutes to do a hundred meters, like four and a half or something. And then I got on my mountain bike, which was mostly kids have mountain bikes. So that wasn't really a big disadvantage. And I did move my way up a little bit. And then on the run, I moved up a fair bit, but I was still like 25th or something like that out of 64, including girls, like, like girls beat me in the race, like, which at the time I thought was terrible. Um, <laughs> I was, I didn't like that, but you know, um, they were really fast. So so anyway, that was kind of my first experience and I was like pretty upset. Like I was so competitive and emotional as a kid. I was like, this is terrible. I'm never doing this. And then the next years, like it subsequently kept coming back, but it was coming back to like a nearby town, not the exact same town. And there was like way less people in it. But eventually like I was doing it every year and I eventually won the race a couple times as like a 13, 14 year old or something. Um, and then we, my dad and I just decided to do the Peterborough sprint triathlon and that was in probably, Oh, probably Oh eight or so. So I was like 16 ish. Like how old have I been? 15 then. And yeah, I got a road bike trained. Like we were like, Oh, we're going to train for this race. It's going to be great. We trained like four weeks or three weeks or something. <laughs> and then did that and I did okay. And 
uh, it's kind of doing a little bit better, but I'm still like, as an age grouper finishing, I think I was like 80 something out of 400 people or whatever. So nothing, nothing special by any means, but that's kind of where it started. And then like for a couple of years, we did that. We trained a bit. And then when I was in 12th grade, I, we got a coach. Um, and my big goal was I was going to do an Olympic distance that year. So I was 17. And then I did that. So that my very first coach was, um, Paul from iron motivation in Durham area. Um, I don't even remember his last name actually, but that was my first experience with a coach. And that was the first time ever that my dad and I like saw in a training plan, like run easy. And we were like, what the hell is this? Like, why would you run easy? <laughs> so like, boring. Like <laughs> we didn't understand it. Cause in our minds, it was like, you train, you run as hard as you can every run. Like that's how oh, we, train. We, we just run all out every time, bike, everything. And it was just that we just didn't know what we were doing. Um, so anyway, that year I got a lot better, obviously, um, training somewhat properly. And then I did the Wasaga Beach Olympic distance at the end of the year. And I think I did 212 or something like that, um, which I thought was pretty decent. And then I went to first year university, didn't have a coach anymore, did my first year thing, didn't really train, like ran like once all winter or something. Um, but I had qualified and then that year I started training again, qualified for worlds, uh, for age group worlds for the following year, which is be when I was in second year. And so then we we're like, okay, maybe we should get a coach like for this off season, you know, October through whatever and, and train for worlds and do well. And that was when I was, I was at university of Guelph and we decided to start with James Loring. Cause we had done like a one-off swim, swim video analysis with him where we saw that I was like scooping up in the water cause I was trying to <laughs> over glide. Cause that's what my previous coach had taught me. Um, so we started with James and then that winter I remember being like, okay, well if I do like half the training, that's pretty good because I have never trained in the winter before. So then I'll, you know, be doing a lot better. So that's what I did. I did like half the training and, you know, did pretty well in age group that year, started getting pretty fast, finished second in my age group at worlds. And then, that was 10, what is it? That was 10 years ago uh, that I started with him. So that, that's kind of where it started really, in my opinion, where I started uh, my journey to being a pro was when I joined with James and actually started following the plan and training year round. Um, a few years after that, I ended up going pro and eventually, um, well, we're here now, but mostly non-drafting Olympic and ITU stuff at first reasonable success but nothing great in itu because my swim wasn't very good and then um long course kind of started in 2017 well 2016 i tried to but then i had a arrhythmia that happened in during the race and i hadn't figured out what it was yet so that race didn't really go as planned and and then 2017 in uh puerto rico was my first kind of long course race and that's where you know i think i got seventh or something and um, that's kind of the start of my career as it is now, I guess. So I'm going to just pause on the arrhythmia. Does it affect you at all today? Have you resolved it? Uh, it's not resolved. It still comes in randomly once every probably six weeks on average, but it's not resolved. It's just, it happens in training and then I just have to stop training until it goes away. And sometimes it goes away in one minute and sometimes it goes away in 20 minutes. and then. It's not really like a big deal because it, it's not like, 
health threatening or anything like I did. So when it happened in that race, I did like the whole swim and bike with it, like in arrhythmia. Um, but it's just like a benign supraventricular tachycardia that happens. And, uh, I could get it fixed, but I would have to get like an ablation and all that. And it's just kind of like the doctor was just like, well, if you can just not aggravate it, then that's better. And things that would aggravate it are like terrible sleep, drinking caffeine. Um, so I don't drink caffeine at all when I'm training. Um, what else? Yeah. Just like you race with caffeine. No. Uh, sometimes I take a little bit just on the run, like in the ink poke, but that at that point, once like my heart rate's elevated, it's not going to happen. It's just in intervals or like starting from a low heart rate and then just like going, that's Mm -hmm. what can cause it. But, um, yeah, if I do like all these things to pry myself of sleep, low calories, like caffeine, I can make it happen a million times. So it's kind of a good thing because it just forces me to recover well to not let it happen. So sometimes it's gone months without going off, which has been good. But yeah, it definitely would be nice to be able to have caffeine. But at the same time, there's probably some health benefits to not taking it regularly. So mm-hmm. it's not the yeah. worst thing. And your snacks make more sense now too. Um, yeah. I want to talk a bit more about James, uh, 10 years you said with the, uh, James. Yeah, uh, it's been 10, it must be 10 years as of like a month ago. So to spend a decade with the same coach, that's a tremendous amount of trust. Um, and mm-hmm. he's been beside you from, you know, a formal beginning of a training plan into pro. Why do you think your relationship works? Um, good question. Well, I mean, I guess the first thing is to to address that it does work, and that's obvious. I mean, I've, I've improved every single year, um, and even, you know, even last year to this year, maybe you could argue my results last year were as good as this year, but I, in terms of my ability and my training and my actual, like, numbers, I know I'm fitter this year. The competition's better, and I've, you know, made some mistakes in racing, but... That being that all being said, I think the the main basis of it is he's just a really damn good coach. Like he knows how to he knows how to create a good training plan that's gonna be if you follow it consistently, you're just gonna get better. Um, and obviously, every coach, you know, not every athlete is gonna work with every with him as a coach, or for that matter, there's no coach that's perfect for every athlete. And the way that he sort of his philosophies and the way he designs his training works really well with me and also just learning on my own as we go and like communicating frequently, you know, talking about what works, what maybe doesn't work, what could work better and sort of, you know, having input from me as we go. Like I don't write my own workouts or anything, but sort of from a planning perspective, like, Oh, you know what this, let's say for example, last week I, like in this last couple of weeks, I've struggled with my swim to like get it to the level where it's been this year. And I just sort of mentioned like, you know, like I feel like I'm just missing that little bit of speed. Like maybe we just need a bit more speed work. We've been doing lots of threshold, few speed sessions before the race. And, you know, yesterday I had my first good, really good swim in a couple weeks. And, you know, maybe part of that is that we just in- implemented a little bit more speed or maybe it's just that it took a couple of weeks to get it back. But Either way, just kind of being open to those kind of thoughts that I have and, and trusting me to say sometimes this is what I think is going to be best. 
but also sometimes I have to trust him and be like, geez, I don't know if this is the right workout today, but it's been working for 10 years. So let's just go for it. And, and, uh, you know, a lot of confidence comes from that, but it is a pretty unique relationship to where like when I started with him, he didn't really have any pros. Um, and you know, not that he focuses on coaching pros, he's mostly age group, but it's been pretty, um, pretty cool to like stick with him. And even though a lot of people, when they get to be pro, they're like, Oh, I need to go pay for this big expensive pro coach that, you know, is world renowned and, and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, you know, he, he also gives you a really good rate because I'm like hurdle project rate from, he always charges like juniors and uh, pros like a lot less because he loves coaching us and wants us to have the ability to be able to afford to be a pro. Um, so you know, that's also a factor, but I don't think that because he doesn't charge me 20% prize money plus 500 bucks a month, that he's not a good coach. Like, I think he's honestly up there with a lot of the best coaches in the world and I don't have any reason to change uh, anytime soon. So I don't, maybe it'll be 20 years. That'd be pretty cool. That that might be like a record. It might be. Well, your results speak for themselves of in terms of his coaching. And we actually have a, a vertical in here called um, Endurance Experts. And so we're going to be talking to him about you. Um, so it, we'll look forward to deconstructing that. Um, you talked about going pro. Um, when did you realize through this timeline that this could be a full-time job for you? Um, so... I did a couple of age group worlds did and got on the podium. And then in 2014, I did my first pro race. I wasn't really like a pro season. I just did one race with pros and that was in Montremblant 5150 Olympic distance. And I did okay. Like I, I think I finished one spot of the money, which I did like five times before I ever won prize money, um, which I think happens to every pro. So that was, that's just part of like, it's uh, just part of, part of the journey. But that point I thought, okay, like, you know, I've got a little ways to go still, but maybe I could make money at this. I didn't really think about going full time until probably 2016 um, where I, I did some Olympic distance stuff at the, uh, the rev three series had some pro racing and I finished on the podium at all three of those hmm. and actually made some decent money. Um, but really I was kind of like semi full time since um, university ended because I had a human kinetics degree, which as a lot of people might know, you, you don't get a job with a human kinetics degree. So, and I just did not want to go back to school. Um, so I was working at the running store. My friend, Brian Cole hired me as a part-time running store clerk. And uh, I worked there, but anywhere between like 10 to 25 hours a week um, for a while. And then eventually like I think it was probably 2017 where I got to the point where like I was working so little and every time I would go work and I'd be on my feet the whole time, I'd be like stressed about not recovering well and stuff. And I was making like three grand for the year anyways. I'm like, what's the point? I might as well just go for it. And honestly, I was really lucky um, throughout university and like my first couple years as a pro, like not breaking even to have parents that would be like, if you don't like, you know, you're making as much as you can. We'll cover if you need living expenses. And I probably borrowed like 25 grand from them at least in total over the course of probably four years, um, which isn't too bad considering, you know, I wasn't making much money at all. So I was really good at like not spending much 
And at first I would only drive to races pretty much. I was like, if it's a pro race then I can drive to it. And I would like stay in like a room of someone's house in an Airbnb that would be like 50 bucks a night. I do all those things to save money. Um, and then by about 2017, I was probably breaking even or so. Um, and then since then I've been making a living and the living's gotten a lot better since PTO has come around. Like my income's probably doubled. Um, in, in part cause I've improved, but in large part because the PTO is here just paying amounts that we've never really seen, uh, at least not consistently in the sport. Yeah. It's so exciting to see that, you know, emerge in the sport and give pros more, more money triathlon is still a relatively new sport. So I'm excited to see more money and more opportunities for pros in the future, for sure. Um, you talked a little bit about, you know, becoming pro. Was there any key changes in your training to get you to the top of the sport? Did you find that racing in the pro field um, launched you into that league? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, I, so I guess like, improvements kind of come in like unpredictable and you know weird ways so when i first was doing 70.3s in 2017 uh, i believe that was the same year maybe even it was the year before that i set my 5k pb running which was 15 20 and this was before super shoes um so you can pretty much just convert that to like 14 50 1320 i would say yeah yeah uh, 13 1250 <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't actually run a 5k in super shoes, but let's just say at that time I might've been in just under 15 minute shape with the shoes we have now. Um, I'm still probably only in just under 15 minute shape. So in terms of my like running speed at a 5k kind of distance, I, I really haven't changed. But in that first year in 2017, I was running like an average of 120 off the bike. Um, so, you know. Now I'm probably averaging more like 112. Um, so things, so if you take a 5K runner running 15 flat and another 5K runner running 15 flat, why can one do 112 and one do 120? Mm -hmm. It's kind of a weird question, but you just, like, I guess it's not really a good scientific term, but like old man strength definitely uh, is the non-scientific version that I would use to explain it. But definitely my aerobic efficiency just really improved. Um, over the years between 2017 up to now, um, more, probably a little bit more volume as time goes on, but a little bit less of the like really high kind of VO2 type workouts and more run volume in that endurance zone, which for me is probably like that 430 ish pace. Um, I used to like never touch anything between 320 per K and like 445 per K. I would just like, really go super, super easy. And then on my workouts, I just smash them. Um, and as I've kind of developed more into a long course athlete, we, we started doing some of those middle zones a little bit more. Um, not that it's like something we do a lot of, but still like I, my long run each week, I'll run about 430 pace, which is above, probably above zone one, maybe like touching on zone two uh, or getting close to it. And then I will do quite a bit of sets where I'll do like more of a tempo effort, uh, which is now kind of like 320 ish. Um, but when I first started training for long course, my tempo efforts were like 340 um, because that aerobic efficiency just wasn't there yet. 
So kind of just developing that over years and then race experience is another huge one. Um, just having more 70.3s in my legs, like the body knows how to respond and, and, and it's been there before. And then just getting stronger on the bike so that you can, I used to bike so hard in these 70.3s. Like I would ride it like an Olympic distance. And even in my first year, I had some great bike splits, but I was just toast when I got to the run. Um, so for a couple years after that, my bike splits didn't really improve, but I was getting off the bike without being destroyed and I was running a lot better. Um, so by like 2019, I had some splits down to like 112s. Um, and that just continued. And, and then my bike had kind of plateaued. And then the last couple of years, I've gotten my bike up, especially this year. I've had like probably all three of my best three rides ever have been this year. Um, and I've still been able to run well off it. So it's kind of been this, you know, hard, hard to exactly explain. And it's not like I've ever been measuring lactate or doing those things to be like, <laughs> oh, see, look, this is what it exactly was. Um, but just kind of learning more as you go through training as well. And I also, there's a lot of things that have changed. Like over the last three years, I've been doing strength, like real strength training twice a week, like pretty heavy, like, you know, squats, um, lunges, uh, like push-ups and some upper body stuff. Um, but I wasn't doing that prior to my crash in 2019. So um, that was one thing I thought, you know, in that time in 2019, I had a lot of time to reflect on things because I wasn't training much. And I decided, I think probably doing strength training is going to be good for me. So I'm going to commit to it. And I've done it for the last couple of years and I've, I've or the last three years and I've improved. Is it because of the strength training? I don't know, but it's certainly not hurting. Um, so little things you just learn and add as you go and trial and error. Um, but yeah, just getting a feel for how the training works for you. It's kind of different when you're not, you know, I can't, like I said, I, I can't go in and say, Oh, look, you know, my, my lact or my, uh, LT one was this back then. And now it's this, but you just learn how your body responds. You just find ways to optimize your recovery and just little improvements all the time. And that's just kind of, and then eventually you just always know what to do. Every time you're in a workout, how you're feeling, how the workout's written, you know how to execute it and you know how to recover from it. You know when to hold back, you know when to push harder and you can't really put your finger on it. You just, you just know. I think um, your approach to training is like really refreshing for a lot of people because I think a lot of people are all excited these days with like everything it's got to be lactate testing every workout in these like 30 hour weeks it seems like um you're taking a much more like simplified kind of quality approach to it what is your like weekly kind of training volume look like like do you get way up in those 30 hours or do you keep it a little more on the lower end of things what does yours look like yeah um this year my biggest so like my heaviest block was just before worlds and for a few weeks, I probably averaged about 28, 29 hours, but that's certainly not my average throughout the year. My average throughout the year would probably be in the low to mid twenties. Uh, like a lot of weeks are around 25 when I'm like just ticking them off. Um, and yeah, I definitely don't measure a lot of stuff. Like I don't even remember last time I did an FTP test or <laughs> any kind of real test from that perspective, but I actually really don't like measuring too many things because it's it's almost impossible for most people to just 
let the numbers be what they are and just do execute the workout because, you know, I see it with swimming all the time. Like if you're not hitting this time, you know, you last time, last week you were doing one tens and this week you're doing one twelve, So that means you're not doing a good workout, but that really clouds your judgment because this is why people use lactate because they're like, Oh, now it'll force me to be in the right zone. Well, I think you can do that without lactate. You just, the time is the time and don't let it influence what you think you're doing in terms of executing the correct effort. Um, so, you know, even on the bike, um, like power, sometimes it's like in my mind, it says, okay, go threshold. So right now my threshold is probably between 350 and 360, but that's still a zone. It's a range, like anything between 330 and 370 really is threshold. So I'll just start my effort. Let's say it's a 10 minute threshold effort. I won't look at the power for the first couple of minutes. I'll just fi find that rhythm be like, okay, here's a threshold effort. And then you can look at the power and just use it to motivate you and stuff. And that's fine. But people get so obsessed and it's just, it's just not the right way to train in my opinion. And my, my GPS watch actually broke recently and I bought a time. I bought a stop, like a watch that just does time. And people are like, what are you doing? How are you using only a watch with time? I'm like, well, I mean, instead of doing one case, I'll just do three minute efforts. Who cares? Like I'll just run hard for three minutes. And then James ended up, ha he has an old one while mine's getting fixed or whatever. I, I did end up picking it up, but also sometimes the GPSs are off. Like, I don't know if you've noticed that, but mm -hmm. like we were doing a workout a couple days ago, I think yesterday, actually me, Taylor and Cody. And it was like two K reps. And there was this one like kind of more technical section and the average pace on the watch dropped from 315 to 310 in like, you know, the third 500 out of a, out of a 2k. So that would have meant we would have had to run that technical section at three minutes per K, which I, I can tell you right now, we were not running at a three minutes per K because we were averaging 315. And I know by my effort that we were not. So that's where they, the watch will deceive you. And you need to learn, you know, that your feeling of your effort can actually be more accurate than a watch. Like most people it's not, but you can get there and you can, you know, build that up. That's why running on a track is great for that reason. Not so good for some other reasons, but if you run on a track, there's no lying. Like people, like I've seen people do a 5k on a track and stop not where the 12 and a half laps is because their watch has a different amount. Like it's insane. So just, you know, the, the technology is great, but just remember, that it's not everything and it can definitely deceive you. And a lot of the times it might be better not to look at the numbers till later or just do the workout, send it to your coach, let the coach, you know, sort of analyze it. Cause it's uh, it's, it can definitely be overload. And now people are trying to do lactate and all these other crazy things. And I'm like, are you sleeping eight hours a night? Are you eating enough? Are you taking in 20 grams of protein and 60 grams of carbs within half an hour of your workout? Cause that one's almost always a no. So, you know, those are things that proven have proven to work. And if, if you're not doing all those, I'd rather see people invest their mental energy into that than to, you know, getting a lactate meter. And you're coaching age group athletes now these days. So is that the same approach you take essentially when you're coaching them of trying to keep things simple, knock off the basics? Yeah. And it's hard. I mean, it's hard for age group athletes to put together a week of consistent training because you work 40 hours a week and, you're visiting your friends on the weekend and you're, you know, going to a concert on Friday night and, you know, you have life. So, um, definitely 
not really necessary to jump into all that data, in my opinion. I mean, mm-hmm. some people who are really consistently nailing everything. Okay, now maybe let's look into some more, you know, scientific methods here to, to really get that extra uh, 1%. But if you're not consistently training or sleeping well, um, you got to look at it more as an art of how do I kind of get myself into this consistent state of recovery and training and balance in life, um, which is, you know, this is a real trick. That's the only thing that separates really the pros from the age group athletes in terms of performance is they have more time to commit to the recovery and that results in much better performance and a a much higher ability to sustain hard training. Um, Obviously the pros are also naturally gifted athletes. There's tons of age group athletes who are naturally gifted too. Both of you guys, I mean, you're really fast. I'm sure you could both be pros if you know, you wanted to just not have money for a while. And that, that other thing, the ability to just not have money for a while and either have like be lucky like I was with parents that can support me or some people um, like Cody, for example, got his education, had a job that paid really well, and he was able to work part time but still make good money. That's the other way you can do it. Um, but it's hard, especially nowadays. It's even getting harder with the cost of living being so high supporting a pro career with anything less than a full-time job or like really good results and sponsors, it's, it's nearly impossible. Mm-hmm. Cool. So you're, you're doing some coaching outside of obviously your training as well. You guys are also, um, tell me a little bit about, um, what you're doing kind of with the real tri squad. Cause it's been kind of fun to see you guys developing that over the last, uh, year or so. Yeah. Um, well, that's so now we have a team of age groupers um, as well that was launched recently, but it really just started as a bunch of a group of pro athletes. Well, I guess even before that, it started with our podcast, the Real Triathlon Podcast, which is me, Nick, and Garrick, um, which started around when COVID started, but that was a coincidence. We actually had planned to start it before that. Um, and we really enjoyed the podcast. We still do. And then the following year, we started a team and we're like, all right, let's get together some pros. We can get some sponsors and we can kind of go to some of the same races, represent this brand and represent the same sponsors. And that'd be fun. And it worked pretty well. And we've done that for two years now. And now this year, we're kind of uh, expanding. We have an age group team. We're having a development team. Anybody can join the age group team. It's free and you just get discounts. You get to come to camps if you want and you can you know, rock our, our, uh, jerseys and our, uh, race kits and stuff if you want. But, um, it really just started as like, we thought it would be fun. Like we thought we could have a team that's more sort of just a bunch of friends that, that it's more fun to go to races together and like kind of represent some of the same sponsors while you're at it. And you're just, you're just kind of like buddies who do the same races. And then you, you know, you're on the same team as well. It's not quite as much of this, like, a lot of these other teams do an amazing job at representing their team and their sponsors, but like, it's clear that they're from different, they don't really know each other and they're all just paid to be on this team. And we wanted to have more of that like friendly kind of vibe and just sort of having fun with it. So it's kind of grown and we're, you know, we're pretty excited this year to launch the age group team and we're going to have our first team camp in, um, in what is it? February, uh, our first sort of age group camp is available. I think it's like the 16th to 20th of February. So steps in the right direction. And, um, 
you know, hopefully it kind of grows into something bigger, but there's a lot of these triathlon brands, like everyone's kind of got their own brand now and we're trying to like have our team be our brand and develop that side of things, uh, get a little bit more into the YouTube and sort of showing what the lifestyle's like. And especially when we're at the races. So Jackson, do you have any goals or plans for 2023? Um, yes. Uh, goal number one is, well, I've already mentioned my swim. Um, this off season, I will be focusing on my swim more so than just train hard in the swim, but like really become a student of the sport and sort of do a little bit more in-depth analysis of what I think needs improving and how to improve it. And I'm going to obviously be working with James to do that. Um, but really focusing the swim as from a training perspective uh, is going to be key for me, but also just more consistent execution of my races. Um, there's a lot of these bigger PTO races next year. There hopefully is going to be four of them instead of two plus the Collins cup. So that'd be five. And then there's 70.3 worlds. There's Oceanside. Um, hopefully North American champs, 70.3. So not racing as much and just not making mistakes. Like obviously I'm probably going to make some mistakes next year, but really learning from the ones I've already made, executing a really good lead up to the race and a good race and, you know, kind of taking better, um, you know, making more use of those opportunities where I, I kind of let some of them slip this year. So um, those are my main goals. I don't have any like specific I want to win this race or that I just think if I take what I've done well this year and improve upon what I've not done well um, I'll be in a really good really good spot so it'd be great to defend at Oceanside and obviously do a lot better in the PTO races in 70.3 worlds in Finland assuming I qualify um, but you know just going and absolutely knowing that I've done my very best and you know didn't screw things up would be great but doing really, really well in all my races and just sort of giving my best effort is, is all I can really set as a goal. And that usually ends up in the best results rather than just sort of specific position or time-based goals for me, at least. Sounds like you have an incredible 2023 coming up. Um, so knowing you like I do and understanding it's probably time to eat again, um, we're going to end this, but I have one final question. So you're our endurance icon. Uh, who's yours? Well, I saw this question coming and, uh, of course I've, I've, uh, I could pick any number of people, but someone I alluded to earlier, I have to go with Simon Whitfield. And the reason for that is because of how he was able to kind of, you know, find a way to compete for such a long period of time. He was one of the best in the world for about 10 years and, Despite being kind of a slower swimmer in ITU, he adapted after he won the gold medal in 2000, didn't have a great race in 04, and he he realized he needed to adapt and find a way to, to get better at the swim, and just even though he wasn't naturally a great swimmer. And he did that, and then he got a silver medal again in 08 and was back in the Olympics in 2012. Um, but, yeah, I mean, to, to just, you know, he embodies the ability to just get the most out of yourself in a race. And obviously he's retired now, but that's kind of how I want to be remembered in my career and how I want to see myself uh, as an athlete is someone who can just 
find a way to compete with guys who are better than me, but I just execute a better race and get the most out of myself. Uh, and that's what I'm working on. And obviously I've done it on certain days and, and other days, not so much. So, uh, it's a work in progress, but yeah, Simon's a huge, you know, he's definitely my endurance icon, but I also <laughs> want to mention on the women's side, because for me on the women's side, it's Daniela reef. And that's because same with her, she went through a period of really struggling and erasing everyone was writing her off. And then she comes back in St. George and just shows that, yeah, she's still the best in the world. And I have no doubt that she's going to be winning, you know, again, despite big coaching change and all the doubts that people had, um, you know, and it was really cool to see how much that win meant to her. So at least for now, like she, she's another endurance icon for me. Amazing. Yeah. Those are absolutely two of the greats. So, uh, we look up to them a lot as well. Well, Jackson, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, this was a total pleasure to be able to talk to you. Um, and we look forward to following your incredible season in 2023. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I'd be happy to come on anytime with you guys. Awesome. Well, we'll have to make that happen again. Perfect.